are featured BBBYZ Giving Alliance accredited charity seal holders for this episode are American Diabetes Association, Project on Government Oversight, National Breast Cancer Coalition Fund. To find out more about these and other BBB Wise Giving Alliance accredited charity seal holders, go to give.org. You're listening to the Heart of Giving podcast with Art Taylor, powered by BBBGive.org. Here we explore the motivations that form the basis of giving and service. We inspire generosity and celebrate the transformative effects that giving and service have on the human spirit and on community. The conversations featured on the podcast also uncover giving strategies that educate and provide tools to help listeners make impactful gifts of both their time and money. We hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to the Heart of Giving podcast, powered by BBBGive.org. Give.org is the nation's standards-based charity evaluator, and it's also your one-stop source for information on giving and reports on the most asked about charities. I'm Art Taylor. And speaking of asked about charities, we're going to have one that is pretty much a household name with people who grew up around the era that I did, particularly if you can remember what you were doing on Labor Day in the 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s, and 2000s. Most of us, and I can tell you when I was a kid, would spend most of Labor Day riveted to the TV with our families, watching the Muscular Dystrophy Association's telethon. I think it was called the Jerry Lewis telethon that raised during its life billions of dollars for muscular dystrophy. And the day would have on TV a list of star studded celebrities and entertainers who would perform on TV live while the phones would be ringing in the background with donations from people who would be calling in from their homes to pledge donations to the Muscular Dystrophy Association. It was a phenomenon in America, unlike anything we've ever seen in fundraising. Highly successful, obviously. And what we're going to do today is reminisce a little bit about the telethon, find out what happened uh, to it. But we're also going to talk about some of the great work that has been able to happen as a result of all of those billions of dollars that had been raised then and the work that Don Wood and his team at the Muscular Dystrophy Association is doing today to not only help kids with muscular dystrophy, but to look into various autoimmune diseases, which MDA is, and find ways to treat and and hopefully cure some of those ailments. So Don Woods, Dr. Don Wood, Welcome to the Heart of Giving podcast. Well, thank you very much, Art, for inviting me. I'm, I'm very excited to be here and to get a chance to talk about, as you point out, those billions of dollars and what they have done, which is truly remarkable. Well, as I said, we're now into September, and I understand that September is dedicated to autoimmune diseases. 
And so what do you hope to see happen this month? What are we trying to do with September and how is it designated as a month for recognition and hopefully support for these diseases? Well, this is to this month, we try to expand the awareness of the general public and the communities in which we operate, which are several hundred communities around the United States, to raise awareness of the great, great progress that has been made over the almost 75 years that MDA has been in existence. We are treating something close to over 70,000 people at our clinic every year, every year. And those people that come into the clinics every year are now experiencing something that the MDA was founded to do and is doing, and that is providing treatments for the first time in history to muscular dystrophy, to people with amyotrophic lateral sclerosis like Lou Gehrig's disease, people who have myasthenia gravis. I could go on and on and on. When we started, the Muscular Dystrophy Association started, we were treating what people knew at that time were and called muscular dystrophy type diseases. And there were about 40 of them, 40 of them. But all those years of progress, we have learned through the scientific work that we have funded globally, not just here in the U.S., but anywhere there's advances. We have learned there's now over 300 different types of the muscular dystrophies type disorders affecting nerve and muscle, affecting nerve and muscle. And the world's finest clinics that can treat and diagnose these disorders with the latest treatments and the best practices are found in over 150 MDA-based clinics throughout the country, throughout the country. So, well, let's talk for a minute about the telephone itself, because I know, like I said, most of us will remember spending some time in front of that TV. And I'm going to tell you, that was a riveting experience because as kids, we had the, the orientation to be outdoors. And Labor Day was the day before school was about to get started. And so we would all be out in the streets generally, but not during the telephone. We'd find our ways back to the TV to see who was going to be on there entertaining and contribute a little bit of money. We didn't have a lot of money in our family, but we all tried to chip in where we could to make donations to support muscular dystrophy. So what's the origination? How did this start, this telephone? Now, that's a great question. I don't think many people realize that. The telethon that you're talking about that people remember, including me, and I was actually on many of the telethons in the 70s and 80s and and 90s going into that, actually didn't start as a national network of telethons. That started in 1966 when we started to become a national telethon network. But the first telethons were held in the 1950s in local localities, usually in New York and around there. And different celebrities would participate. People like Eleanor Roosevelt, for example, actually came on one of the early telethons. People who, who you would know. Lou Gehrig's wife, Eleanor Gehrig, came on to the telethons. And she, she led the MDA's effort into Lou Gehrig's disease for, for a couple of decades. I mean, etc. But then, of course, the gentleman everybody knows, Jerry Lewis, <laughs> started participating in the, in the 60s. And with his participation, the telethons 
eventually grew into a national network, which we called the Love Network. And the Love Network, as you pointed out, kept growing hugely until at its peak, there were over 200 television stations that dedicated a day and a half, pretty much, to helping the Muscular Dystrophy Association create the awareness of these disorders. And then the public, kids with piggy banks. I mean, it was just an amazing event of people donating and they loved the telethon. But that's the, now everybody knows about the telethon and celebrities that came on and the entertainment. That was all very exciting. No, but they may not know about the celebrities. Talk to us about some of the celebrities who participated back in the day. Oh my gosh. I mean, it, 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 it was a who's who of the people that folks would, would see in, uh, television in those days. You had, uh, get Frank Sinatra come on. At one point, they got Frank Sinatra and Dean Martin came back to reunite with Jerry Lewis for a, a little bit. Their history, as many people know, they were America's greatest comedy act for years, top draws, and then they had a falling out for many, many years, and they, they came back because Frank Sinatra got them back, and that occurred on the telethon. <laughs> that occurred on the telethon. And then, and then you had uh, rock stars that came on, gosh, T television celebrities, singers, dancers, just all kinds of folks showing up on the telethon. But what was really interesting about the telethon to me was that that's where people learned about folks with neuromuscular disease. That's where people learned about, you know, people with muscular dystrophy, because I don't know if people remember all of this, but you'll remember the videos of the families and what they were going through and what they did. And it was for all of us that were involved, for all of us that were involved, it was when we got a chance to meet the families, to learn about their firsthand, which developed the people's passion for help, for helping and for donating and for uh, helping us grow. It's meeting the families. It's an unforgettable event <laughs> when you do that. Well, yeah, and I remember just the tremendous amount of volunteerism, people manning the phones and all sorts of things going on in the background. How many people actually, do you have any sense of how many people were participating as volunteers? As volunteers, volunteers, the numbers went into the thousands. When you looked at the 200 television stations around the nation that were part of the Love Network, every one of those stations had, had well over 200 volunteers to help during the entire Labor Day telethon. And, and many of those people held events themselves to raise money for Muscular Dystrophy Association. So they not only volunteered to help Telethon, but in the next week or the weeks before, etc., they themselves also raised dollars for for people. It, it really covered everybody. I mean, we, we had in those days something called hopathons. If you've got a kid five years old, six years old, they would they would raise pennies by hopping. However many times they hopped, you know, there would be a penny for per hop. And then it, and then high school students did, and college students did dance-a-thons and obviously all kinds of cool things that people did. And then they, many of them were brought on to the telethons. That's where the communities learned about all the different activities. And it, it really was a, I don't know, for, for on Labor Day, the nation came together. 
It really did. It was a nation that came together to honor the people that had these disorders by showing their love. That's why we call it the Love Network, by showing their love and showing their concern. And that's how the Muscular Dystrophy Association grew into the organization we know today. Well, I will tell you, it was great for all of the people who you were trying to help to be able to raise that money. But I also want to hold up this thought that you brought up, that it was a nation that came together. It was a nation that came together. No matter where you were from, what you did for a living, um, where you lived, what you were interested in, we seem to have a national unity, at least for a day, around supporting this telethon in some way, even if we were just watching. Yeah. Because watching was important too. You know, just having the eyeballs gave the stations the impetus to stay on because those ratings helped them with advertising. Right. So it was all just, even if you watched, you were essentially a supporter. Mm -hmm. And I, and the, the actors and people who gave their time and energy and passion, Jerry Lewis was one of the most passionate people you could ever find for a cause. And uh, he lived that, it seemed, on on air those that day and a half. And um, just amazing. I, I think we kind of missed that. And I know there's probably no way to bring it back, so we, we're not going to talk like that. But the country so needs something to rally behind. You know, we're all sort of now, we, we use the phrase polarization. You know, the country is polarized. Either you're this or you're that, and you can't quite come together. And I think we've lost something. You know, America's always been very plural, which is great. But not having things that we could all support and really show what it means to be America and what what it means to be American and have the privilege, American citizenship, like we've had throughout all of our lives, and be able to show that in a way that's tangible as you did with this telethon. I think we missed something. And I, I just wanted to, to mention that. Well, I, I appreciate what you've just been saying. It's one thing I, I do want to talk about, and, and, and that is, what, why is American science and medicine so far ahead of anywhere else in the world? Why, why is it that we have this you know, tremendous advances in medicine and science in America? And the big reason is the generosity of Americans, their philanthropic generosity, that they contribute to organizations like the Muscular Dystrophy Association. And before the Muscular Dystrophy Association, there's the famous March of Dimes, led by our president at the time, Franklin Delano Roosevelt. And that led to the salt vaccine, which eradicated polio. Just as the Muscular Dystrophy Association is now coming up with treatments for what was thought to be, at one point, incurable diseases. And it's because of the generosity of Americans that support nonprofit voluntary health agencies like the Muscular Dystrophy Association that has really 
done something that no other country in the world does. No other country in the world has the kind of generosity that Americans have shown towards nonprofit voluntary health agencies. I, I can't say thank you enough to all the tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of donors throughout the country. Yeah. Well, you know, you're so right. And we, we need to keep that spirit alive. Yes. But let's talk about some of the advances that we've experienced now as a result of your efforts. What have we seen happen over the years now as a result of what you've been able to do? Well, this, this is when it gets incredibly exciting. Um, let me start with 1950. That's when that's when a group of, of families in New York started the Muscular Dystrophy Association, and they could find in the entire country no scientists were studying neuromuscular diseases or muscular dystrophy. They found one physician, one, uh, in New York City who was studying and trying to help people with, with muscular dystrophy and, and related disorders. And that's how we started. But we started at a time when no one knew that what the genetic material was. All of these disorders are genetic in nature. They start with a defect, we now know, to DNA. Uh, but we didn't even know that DNA was the genetic material. And they didn't know, they didn't know how muscle worked, how normal muscle worked. We didn't know how muscle produces force or anything. So can you imagine, I, I try to imagine what hope what dreams those that families must have had to start an organization like this when there was nothing nobody studying the disease anything and from that beginning think about this from that beginning they've started with a focus on we need new knowledge so it was starting with research and we continue to this day to maintain that force and strength for new knowledge and research, etc. And they also started with the concept of training, creating fellowships, attracting people into a field that didn't exist. So from 1950 to now, what the Muscular Dystrophy Association has done, and let's be fair, what the people who donated to MDA have provided is a whole new field of medicine that didn't exist. Now we have a neuromuscular disease medicine and scientific community. Thousands of doctors, hundreds and thousands of, of scientists, even around the world, all working on improving outcomes for families and people with these disorders. And, and a number of history-making events have occurred. So, for example, the first of these history-making events was the discovery of the gene itself that causes the most common form, childhood form of muscular dystrophy called Duchenne muscular dystrophy. That was done at a time in 1986, at a time when the National Institutes of Health would not fund research in this area because they said the technology wasn't available to discover a human gene causing it, causing a disease like this the technology didn't exist, they said. Well, we ended up at Muscular Dystrophy Association, put together what we call the Task Force on Genetics. I led that. I put that together, Task Force on Genetics. We went out and I found three laboratories that I thought were the most creative, uh, innovative type laboratories in this field. And, and we said, okay, we'll give you whatever you need 
go for it. Literally, go for it. Find the gene. Well, those three laboratories in three years, from 1983 to 1986, in three years came, every one of them was very close to finding it until finally one laboratory led by Dr. Lou Kunkel at Children's Hospital at Harvard identified the gene for Duchenne muscular dystrophy. I'll never forget that day. He gave me a call. I was in New York at the time. I, I listened to what he was saying. I, I thought, oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. I think you got it. And so I went and I grabbed the first plane out of New York, went to Boston and we looked at the data and there it was, there it was the gene. You can't imagine the thrill. That's still the biggest thrill of my life is when we sat there and looked at that data and we knew we had the gene. And then it was finally published in October and Jerry Lewis, Jerry Lewis, myself, and Dr. Lou Kunkel sat on a stage and announced it to the world that we had discovered for the first time in human history, a gene underlying a devastating, deadly disease. And we did not know what that gene did. We didn't know the protein the gene made. We had all that in front of us, but we got, we had found the gene. And that was obviously televised all over the world. Well, when you asked about, you know, what do those telethons mean? What do all those donations mean? What it meant was for the first time, now we had a chance, had a chance to develop a treatment and a cure. And what's very exciting was just two months ago, two months ago, for the first time in history, we've announced that we now have a gene therapy for boys with for kids with Duchenne muscular dystrophy. We did it. We got there. Just, just amazing. And again, it goes back to that generosity of American bringing America together for making you know something happen that in the days before they would say it's impossible to cure a genetic disease. It's impossible to, so don't do it. You didn't, nobody studied it in medical school. Let me tell you, if you graduated medical school before 10 years ago, you you didn't get trained in any of this because it didn't exist. What we're seeing is, is the beginning right now. We are living in the beginning of the genetic medicine era, a brand new era in medicine. And again, Dr. Peter Marks, who's head of the FDA and makes the, the, the group that approves treatments, et cetera, et cetera, was a keynote speaker at our annual Muscle Scientific Conference, which, by the way, is the biggest conference on neuromuscular disease in the world. And he was a keynote speaker, identified MDA as one of the leaders in the development of this nascent medicine called genetic medicine and pointing to these kinds of discoveries and these kinds of excitement that is just, it's impossible for me. I've been involved with this for 40 years and I'm still get goosebumps (laughs) when I think of how far we've come and what great things that they're doing. And very importantly, very importantly, when I talk to physicians now, I tell them, look, we now have the tools to diagnose these diseases, but it's not enough to diagnose the disease. Now what you do when you have a patient and you have diagnosed a disease, the very next thing that you must do, and you have to do this, is prepare them for a clinical trial. Everybody has a chance now. Prepare them for a clinical trial. When I started, when I started 40 years ago, not one pharmaceutical 
company in the world was looking for medicines for patients with muscular dystrophy, ALS, and, and any of the neuromuscular diseases. Now, there are hundreds. And the pipeline of promise that we call it, the pipeline of promise, is filled with developing therapies for dozens of these disorders, dozens of these disorders. So we are in, a, in an era where it's not only possible to treat many of the diseases now, but in an era that we are confident we're going to see treatments show up for a lot more diseases in the next few years. Amazing. Absolutely amazing. Just the pace of progress. I got to give you one other one other piece of data. That sure, go ahead. Yeah, because I, I grew up in the era when when there were no treatments <laughs> for anything, right? Okay. Well, just in this last year, there have been five new FDA approved treatments for neuromuscular disease. Five, and we're looking at more coming up next year and the year after. Wow. So here's a question for you. I am on the board of an organization called the Institute for the Future. And one of the things we do at the Institute is try to understand what may be happening in the world in different fields over the next 10 years. And we do this by gathering signals of things that we see in the environment today. And then we try to project what might be possible as a result of that signal becoming more prevalent over time. Right now, I would say this treatment is a signal. And I want to just get a sense from you as a result of this signal. What do you see happening over the next 10 years with the support of Americans that we might be able to do? Well, Thank you for that question. That, that's that's you know something that that we think about and talk about quite a bit where we are because we have been part of uh, amazing changes over a period of time and and are aware of, of and try to be aware of you know where the field's going and what's next. I think what we're seeing in, in the era of genetic medicine will be a new approach to medicine generally. That, that the way in which we experience medical treatments now is, are going to evolve. And, and they'll evolve to more and more medicines will be designed for the individual, for the individual. Right now, medicines are designed for a larger population, right? Sort of a one-size-fits-all category. Vaccinations are like that, okay? Because they're, everybody gets the same vaccination. Why? Well, because the virus that they're trying to vaccinate against or the bacteria they're trying to vaccinate against, it's, it's one type of thing. So that's a kind of one-on-one. -on -one. Genetic medicine is one-on-one. -on -one. Each of us has our own type of genome, right? I mean, it's a human genome, but we all, we all are different in some way. And when you get a genetic disorder, it's, it's, the body is missing a chemical piece of itself, or the chemical piece is not working right, or however you want to look at it. And now when you're trying to fix that chemical piece, add it back, you're adding it back to a body that's already functioning. In other words, you're adding it back to an individual who has their own genome, etc. And when you add it back, each body will be different in terms of how it reacts to that, how it reacts to that. So what, what does that mean from a medical standpoint? Well, we now call it precision genetics, and it's already started. 
but I can see it taking over the approach we use down the road. And what is precision genetics? It's not enough, precision genetics, it's not enough just to know what the gene is that you have defective that causes your disorder. You have to also know what your genome is. What is it that, you know, how is your genome constructed? What is it doing? What what kinds of things is it going to impact when you put the, the new gene in? And for that, you need the knowledge of your entire genome. And so now what we're doing right now is when someone is diagnosed with a genetic disorder, we're not only identifying the gene and its defect, but we are also trying to get a picture of their entire genome in order to design the treatment for it, design the treatment for it. So, so why, why do you have, I mean, it comes back to saying down the road, the concept of side effects, every drug has side effects. Even the, the genetic diseases, when you put in a new gene, there are side effects. Why? Why are the side effects? Well, because everybody is, every body, every human body is different. And so no matter what you put in there, people are going to react differently. And precision genetics will allow you to know what that difference might be before you apply the treatment. So we'll be able to start applying treatments and through precision genetics, reduce the concept, reduce the amount of side effects that you will be seeing. That's, that would be huge. That would be huge. And that's where I, you know, I, I love your, your question because 10 years down the road, we're going to be seeing probably the first of, of these precision genetic uh, treatments becoming available for certain diseases. That's amazing. And this is where technology gets really exciting, right? I mean, it's, it's yes. just, uh, yep. this is where it gets really exciting. The potential to do the kind of work you're talking about can only happen with, you know, great technology and people passionate about making that technology work for good. Well, Don, I want to, um, cause we're, we're getting close to time, but I wanted to just throw one other thing out here and it's, it's a congratulations to you. You mentioned that you've been doing this for 40 years. <laughs> yep. <laughs> 40 years, but it's, it's, uh... Most of your professional career has been spent working on this. People, young people in particular, ask me, you know, what can I do to achieve impact? And I say to them, find something that you're passionate about and stick with it. You're not going to see major changes overnight generally. Sometimes if we're lucky, we get involved in something and we see immediate results. But more likely than not, change, the kind of change that you're talking about, Don, takes time. It takes commitment. It takes will. And it takes support from others that has to be organized. You were involved in all of that over this last 40 years. And this is the result that you're seeing. And I'm not saying that every person who's involved in something for 40 years is going to see what you are seeing the kind of breakthroughs that you're seeing. But we don't have a chance if we're not committed for the long term. Now, I know that everyone will say, most people say, well, we can't do it for 40 years. We can't stick to something for that long. But stick to it as long as you can. Find something that you're passionate about. Stick with it. Because in the end, you get to be 
Don Wood, who can look up and say, this is what my life has meant. This is what my work has produced. And it's got to be an amazing feeling for you, Don, first of all. But more importantly than the feeling that you're getting is the results that you've achieved for people who 40 years ago would not have had a chance in life. You're giving people hope. You're giving them a chance. And I can't tell you how important that is for us as human beings to contribute in the way that you have. So I just want to thank you because you've, you've been an example to others. Most people don't know Don Wood, <laughs> but I hope more people will get to know you now because of what you've done and your commitment, more importantly, to making change over a long period of time. Well, thank you so much, Art, for, for those very kind words. <laughs> I wouldn't be where I am without all the people that have helped me, my mentors, my encouragers. <laughs> You're right. Uh, not, not a lot of people stick with something for a long time, but this has always been incredibly exciting to me from the very first time. I was actually an MDA grantee when I was doing research <laughs> back in the day. And, and I've been fortunate. I've been very, very fortunate uh, to be working with some of the brightest, smartest people uh, around. I've always had uh, really good collaborators and colleagues, etc. And you're right, it, it's a thrilling feeling. It's absolutely beyond words how thrilling it's been to see this field move so far, so fast, and with such good results. And I, I wake up every day with the same enthusiasm. <laughs> I can't wait to see what the what the next discovery is going to happen is, is, is going to be. So, I love what I do. I never get tired of it, and I'm I feel as energetic today as I did 40 years ago. So, again, thank you. That's great. Well, and there's one other point, one other piece of this, and that is the Muscular Dystrophy Association. An institution was created to house this work and to organize it so that things could actually get done, so that resources could be gathered, so that talent could be procured, so that the best minds could find ways to work together, so that volunteers could participate. I, I say this because we're also at a time when people devalue institutions. And I know over the years... MDA, Muscular Dystrophy Association, has had its ups and downs, like all institutions will. But you have persevered as an institution. Different boards were organized over that time. Different staff people were, were brought together. Different volunteers over a vast period of time. And there were ups and downs in this institution. But it persevered to where now it's positioned to do something great. And I, I want to say to my fellow Americans, we need institutions. I know that we're at a point in time today when we don't trust institutions the way we used to. And there's reason for that. There's reason for that. But we have to find ways to fix them, not do away with them. We have to fix them so that they can do the kind of work 
that you've done at MDA over all these years, Don. So congratulations to MDA for persevering as an institution to enable this to occur. Thank you so much, Art. I, I couldn't agree more. I really don't have anything more I could say that from what you've just said. I agree entirely. The it it's bringing to the institution brings together all the diverse talents that are necessary to create the kind of of new frontiers that that we're seeing today in in our particular area in medicine. But it's true in other areas as well. You need a diversity of talent. You need a critical mass of people. You need volunteers. (laughs) You need staff members. And when you have that and it works, it's something special and really good things can happen. So I, I agree with everything you said. Well, Don, thank you for joining the Heart of Giving podcast. And to all of you who are listening for the first time, we do this every week. So I hope you will subscribe to the show. Really important that you subscribe so that you can hear more stories from great institutions and great leaders who are doing tremendous work furthering different causes and moving our society, advancing our society. And they will also show you through their work what you can be doing to make a difference in your communities and hopefully even the world. So thank you for listening. We'll be right back here next week. And by the way, if you want to support the podcast, you can do so by going to give.org, G-I-V-E dot O-R-G, and making a donation. We're the organization that accredits great charities like the Muscular Dystrophy Association so that people know that they can trust them. So we'll see you right back here next week. You've just listened to the Heart of Giving podcast with Art Taylor. Be sure to tune in next time for a brand new episode. To listen to our other interviews, visit heartgiving.podbean.com. That's heartgiving.podbean.com. Subscribe to our show on major podcast platforms. The thoughts and opinions expressed on this podcast are the views and opinions of the guests, not those of the BBB Wise Giving Alliance or program affiliates. This podcast is for information and educational purposes only and is copyrighted with all rights reserved. This podcast is protected by Podbean's Terms of Service.